This is another recording of the Adelaide Entrepreneur Club podcast. On day 213, we had a great conversation with Sven over in the UK, and unbeknownst to us, he recorded the conversation, and it was absolutely amazing. So we're now bringing it to you guys over two parts as a podcast, and you'll learn some amazing things from Sven. We got some great insights from him, so I hope you enjoy listening to Sven as much as we did having the conversation with him. Bye for now. Oh, oh great. We can hear you too now. That's good. That sounds really <laughs> nice good. Nice chair you've got there. Yeah, you've got a racing chair as well. Gaming chair. Yeah, it's cheaper than a proper office chair if you want to have something that is properly built. It's really yeah. Fun. Yeah. So I just thought like, no, then I just go for this one. Yeah, now they're so good. So uh, you had to get something comfortable when you knew you were going to sit in chairs for such a long time. <laughs> it was quite funny because it, I got it for my birthday. You're done. That's us. Battery going flat. Oh, is it really? Unplug it. Unplugged. Okay. Sorry about that. Do you need to change it? Oh, no, no. it's all good. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, don't I, I did it. Um, I got it for my birthday this year. So and my birthday was literally a week before lockdown. Oh, oh. wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so someone, was, someone knew what was coming. <laughs> so it was actually quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I love the chair. I do love it. Yeah. There's like, there's still kind of something for your neck and I don't like it because it just puts your head forward and I don't. Yeah. 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 Really oh, I've got yeah. mine on there, but Stephen yeah. doesn't have his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only when we uh, have to put it back to have a snooze. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Tell me a bit more about you. I just looked up where you are according to your LinkedIn profile. So you seem to be in South Australia. Yes. We yeah. Are. Adelaide, South Australia. So yeah. yeah. Ever been out this way, Sven? I've I've once been on the southern peninsula of the of the globe in Tanzania, so that's the furthest south of. Oh, wow. okay. <laughs> oh well, yeah, so you live in England in the UK, is that correct? I live in Plymouth, so basically in the very place where probably a lot of people who initially actually went to Australia came from. Oh really? So so uh, James Cook was it called James Cook the the yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, he sailed from here. Oh, wow. Ah, well, there you go. So, French Drake sailed from here. So, all these kind of big names that people know, um, they basically sailed from Plymouth. Oh, wow. That's a bit of history I had no yeah, idea. <laughs> yeah, That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, we should know that yeah, stuff. Yeah, we should do, yeah. <laughs> so, you, you've lived there, you lived there ever since you moved to the UK or...? Yeah, we basically, my wife and I came in 2005, the first time here, um, to spend our first year of marriage. So one of the things was we wanted to improve our English because we felt like we might want to live somewhere abroad. So we took our honeymoon, extended it to, to 10 and a half months, and oh, wow. to England first time. Went back <laughs> to Germany in 2006. Um, she finished her school training. and. Um, and I went, just had some, a job. Then 2008, we basically said like, okay, it's time to go. And we felt like we'd go back to England. So initially we went a bit north from here, uh, but in Cornwall. So it's a bit northwest. And a beautiful place, beautiful beach, Atlantic coast um, place called Poseth, a little village. And then went to America for three months and then came back 
And since June 2009, we are basically continually here. Okay. Oh, wow. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And you grew up in, um, in East Germany, I hear, I see. Yes, I was actually born in East Germany. So wow. I was the perfect communist child. Right, okay. <laughs> that would have been an interesting... Uh, I guess you don't know no different when you're growing up in that, no. when you're growing up inside of it, or did you notice a difference? What do you mean? Sorry. But when you're growing up, I guess if that's all you know, you know like as a child, that, that, East, yeah. East Germany and communism, I guess you don't know any different until you get exposed to the outside world, or did you get some exposure to the outside world when you were growing up? Well, I lived only 15 kilometers away from the border to West Germany. So I didn't right. live in Berlin. Some people think I lived in Berlin, but even Berlin would have been able to receive Western TV through just normal. Um, so people had TVs at home. Most households had TV. Um, so I grew up with Knight Rider and A-Team and oh, right, okay. Airwolf. You know, so I, I remember all those kind of 80s series being on TV screen and um, going to school and we would just, you know, replay the A-Team and you know, things like this. I, I remember those things. Um, but the un interesting thing is, you know, what indoctrination can do, and as a child you don't have kind of the ambitions really, you know, even as a, as a teenager um, to, to teenage years, you know, you, you make your mind up according to the boundaries you have around you. Mm -hmm. Not really trying to break the boundaries down. You're not really thinking like, oh, I would love to live in London. Or so, so, you know, you just knew that's not going to happen. So, um, and, and it was not really interesting for me. Well, my parents, my family was not necessarily a traveling family much. You know, we went on holiday and, you know, yes, but I've been once in all those childhood years with my family, we were once in the Czech Republic um, or Czechoslovakia back then um, for, for summer holiday. So that was the furthest away I was from home ever <laughs> before the war oh. came down. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it was, it was really having seen that, but the indoctrination system works really well uh, or worked really well because they would always right. tell you like, oh, look at the news, you know, they're striking over there and, you know, we don't need to strike. We have everything. We have all the securities we need. And, um, and it was like that, you know, right, okay. food was cheap. Housing was cheap. Um, everybody had a job. I, I worked in the summer and one summer in a factory and there was one guy who was drunk every single day. He turned up at work and he got paid, you know, but he was drunk every single day. That's just, just that, that's unthinkable in a capitalist world. You know? yeah. Yeah. And, and things like that. So where I say like, you know, everybody virtually had a job. And, and you know, yeah, of course it was not the an econ economy that could compete. You know, because yeah. that's what we noticed when the world war came down, everything fell apart. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. Mm. And did, yeah, so out of curiosity, like being there when that happened, was it a was it a monumental day when the wall came down, or was it just you know out of curiosity from your perspective as a teenager? Well, first of all, it was a shock thing. 
Okay. Because, um, I mean, I was, as I said, like, I believed in this thing. I believed in communism. I believed in the idea. Um, my parents, my mom used to be a teacher. She just had gone off work because um, she had problems with her hearing. Couldn't, couldn't teach in a school anymore. But um, my dad was a party secretary as part of his job in the factory where I worked. And um, I had a career plan. I wanted to become a software engineer. And I had uh, been told at school, hey, you know what? One of the easiest way of doing this is to just go to the army. So I thought, okay. So in 88, I basically had applied to go to the army, become an officer at the army. I'd gone through all the medical stuff. Um, had to go to a hospital because I thought like something with my kidneys that might be wrong and things like this. And, uh, you know, like complete deep check. And I think by September 1989, I had a confirmation that that's going to go ahead. So for me in 1989, in September, I knew I will be one year, one more year in the village, go to school. I will then go to the New York City, do my A-levels and some other vocational training. And then I will go to the army for the next 25 years. So I right. had a career plan of about yeah. 30 years planned ahead. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And that was fulfilling my biggest dream at the time. So that was what I dreamed. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So 9th of November, 1989. Um, I mean, there was uprisings and stuff, and it was kind of a little bit unsettling in some sense. But in the village, we didn't see much. You know, there was no demonstration in our village. Yeah. <laughs> So everything you saw, you saw from TV. But um, yeah, 10th of November, because I didn't actually know that what happened on that evening because I was already in bed uh, when it really probably came out in East Germany. Um, so morning, I wake up. My mom opens the door as every morning, turn on the light and says like, hey, good morning. Uh, the wall is open. That was unthinkable. That was completely unthinkable. I mean, you know, it was probably discussed like they might or give more travel freedom. So there might be an agreement that we can maybe travel to the West, West more often. But actually the wall would open. That was unthinkable. That was an absolutely, that was not absolutely on the radar. Wow. And yeah. my mom said that completely neutral. And I asked her just a few so basically a few years ago, I said, like, so how was it for you guys? Because yeah. I said, like, actually, I remember that this, that morning, it felt like there was no celebration. There was no really kind of sadness in our house. It was just like nothing. And my parents just said, like, well, we were just in shock. Right, okay. Okay. Wow. And, and, and I was in shock, you know. And then I yeah. go to school and the teacher just says, like, well, that it would collapse one day was always clear. The very wow. teacher who taught us all about communism was the very teacher that was a scheduled class on that day who stands in front of the class and says, well, that it would collapse one day was always clear. And he said, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's news to us. Wow. You know, um, it just turns everything apart. It just, you know, that 10th of November, will never, I will never forget the day. And... Mm. No, and then a few days later, my parents basically tell me that they have been under the Stasi surveillance. So Stasi was the secret police. Um, right. And they were basically under surveillance, um, and they knew that. So our phone was bugged. Um, they were followed by cars and things like that. And um, I didn't know that. 
you know, my parents had kind of lived this life to kind of really keep the family unit together. And I suddenly find out like, okay, there's a bigger story behind that. And my parents basically told me that my granddad on my dad's side, he was arrested by the Russians in 1945 in probably August, uh, taken to um, camps that were part of the Gulag system of the Russians, but they were all in East Germany, the camps that my granddad was to. So one was a prison camp in, in Northeast Germany. And then he went to Buchenwald, um, which was is one of the famous concentration camps in East Germany because the Americans delivered it. Um, but the Russians reused Buchenwald as a gulag camp until 1950. Oh, wow. And that's a piece of history not many people know. Okay, so that's not even just a piece of history that I didn't know. I keep telling my story now. And people are like, I never knew that. Everybody thinks yeah. concentration camps just closed and disappeared in 1945. But the yeah. Russians in East Germany actually reused them for oh, their wow. own purposes. That Nobody knows that, you know. And it's like, so, and that was system damaging information. So that's why my parents were threatened. If they pass on the story, then they will take the children away. Right. Okay. Oh, wow. So, so 89 my worldview is alive, my career plan is gone, and I don't even know what my parents, who my parents really are, what they believe, and, right. and the rest of my family, because everybody, I, I can now voice it, like peacefully voice it. I was basically lied to for 15 years of my life for almost anybody around me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 we can't imagine how shocking yeah. that must have felt to you. We just yeah. can't, yeah. So I guess now being where you are, like what have you, what's your learnings from that that, that that have helped you now, like later on in life, have you learned from that and applied it in some way or? Yeah, I mean, this is like, I tell this story in my TEDx talk um, where I basically identified, after I identified the three things I lost, I also kind of quickly identified three things I learned um, or two at the time when I first started really looking into this. Um, number one is um, I had to learn to think. Okay, I, it, in 1999, I had an experience with a, with a leader who, you know, I told him something about what I experienced and how I lived. And then he just suddenly said like, oh, you know, Sven, when I was younger, I believed the same thing. And for me, I experienced similar things. But then, you know, I went to this kind of training place and they clearly told us that it's not right and so that's why you know just forget about it and i was shocked i thought like so wait a minute you went to a training place like a school and just changed your mind because you got told so and immediately in my mind something happened that i thought like that's what happened to me when i was young I was just told all the time, all the stuff. And then I realized even up to 1999, I had never properly, proactively um, and consciously thought or created an opinion on the basis of my own reasoning. Right. Okay. So for me, opinion was always created out of choosing which opinion I'm going to align myself to not according to really having reasoned it through and coming to my own conclusion. Yeah. So for me, 
opinion was always a choice, not, not necessarily something that I actually acquire. So, and I rejected almost entirely education. Um, I stopped reading books. I, um, I was not a big reader anyway, but I really stopped kind of, I don't read teaching books. I don't want to be told. Um, and I made a decision. I'm going to question everything. Yeah. yeah. Like literally everything. <laughs> so I was 25 at the time and I just started questioning wow. everything, you know. Um, and I went to a Bible college, for instance, as well. And, you know, even the preachers that, that kind of taught us and at the conferences that we were in, I questioned everything. I just, you know, I said like, well, this is your, your way of seeing it. But is it true? Is it really so? Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, hadn't, I had no fear to just question it just for myself. myself you know? Not, I didn't want to push it on anybody else. I just yeah. questioned it yeah. for myself. Yeah. So, and that was really, it's an, it's an amazing thing to have done. You know, I went through conspiracy theories and things like that. I've explored all kinds of things. And, um, you know, and you suddenly realize over years that, they're just manipulative language. Why they work, why people believe them is they're so well communicated. Yeah. You know? um, and then anyway, and then the second thing I learned is um, when I got married in 2005, my wife and I, as I told you earlier, we came to the UK. And one of the things we wanted to do here was we wanted to find people who could invest into us as a couple and help us kind of mentor us so that we can build our relationship on a firm foundation. Yep. So good okay. thing to what, what not many people do. I know that. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. And, um, and I said like, okay, I want to do this. So we came here and we met, met a couple, um, both in their fifties, sixties. <clears throat> and um, Pete, one day we were, were married for about six weeks. He said like, Hey, said, how many arguments do you guys have? <laughs> sorry. How many, how many arguments? Oh, I, sorry, how Jenny. many arguments do you guys have? Yeah. Oh, I don't really want to answer that question. <laughs> 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 and uh, I said to him like, well, one big one every week. And then he laughed and looks at me and says, I think you guys don't have enough conflict. And it's like, on which planet does this guy live? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want harmony in my relationship. I want passion. I want, you know, all this kind of nice and closeness and stuff like this. And he tells me like, I don't have enough conflict. You guys are, you're just crazy, you know? Yeah. So I completely disagreed with him really. And then I, and he said like, no, 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 you know, you see conflict like the wrong way. You need to see the opportunity. Every conflict situation is an opportunity to get to know each other. It's an opportunity to learn about your differences and to learn to appreciate each other's differences and to really help each other grow in your differences. You know, and that's kind of where the journey started that I learned to love conflict. Right, okay. Okay. So which people like, oh, but why do you love conflict? Yes, I do love conflict. I don't like fighting or uh, violence. That's not what I mean. But yeah. I love conflict. I love the 
the point of where different things clash, where differences clash, different opinions clash, where um, different viewpoints clash. You know, I love that moment. Um, and, and it was a long journey as well. But what it also did is it basically unleashed my then suddenly curious thinking and questioning everything even more because now I've become an uncomfortable person. I'm not actually afraid of raising the conflict neither. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not just reasoning within me. It's not just thinking for myself and then every now and again, let somebody into my thinking. No, now I'm actually like, let's see, you know, um, and, and, and raise conflict outside, you know, not just in my, in my family, but also outside. And yeah, that's where I encountered, oh, crazy, you know, people just don't like conflict at all. It's, no, it's, they don't. Yeah. Um, don't, people don't like to be questioned and it's, it's a very difficult thing for people to deal with. Um, also people in leadership, you know, when you just go to them and say like, oh, why are you doing this and this like this, you know, and, you suddenly realize that some leaders completely, they feel attacked personally by you even yeah. just asking the question, you yeah. know, or by, by suggesting something. People, some people feel completely questioning who they are. And I'm just asking, you know, I had learned through my own conflict journey with my wife that we're different. We see yeah. things in a very different way and we do things in a very different way. And actually, there is so much complementary power in that that it's so well good to find that out. But when I raise it with other people, or with, especially with, with managers and stuff like this, like, you know, oh, you have to submit yourself first, you know, you have to be, you know, it's like suddenly it's yeah. like, you no, know, you just need to know your position first before you can start talking. And I think, um, I'm not sure what, what's happening, but I think you and I are different. I see things that you don't, and for me, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But you don't think that that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the second part of my learning curve was just to learn to love conflict and holding emotional tension and things like that. And then the third thing that was kind of where the whole recovery came together was kind of learning about values. Okay. Uh, I let I read Bernie Brown's book like this one. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I read this as part of a management leadership course. Um, I did read her book as part of the personal development part of it, um, and it basically fell into my hands literally just when I was really looking to find a book that I would like to read. You know, I was like. Um, yeah, it was basically released the time that I was needing, I needed a book. Wow, let's <laughs> talk about timing. Yeah. So it's just amazing. So I read this book and then of course there's this page um, where she talks about values and about core values and that we need to know our values. And, um, and I thought like, oh yeah, I know quite a few of my values. I know, I know my values of uh, loyalty. I know that I love submitting. I love working under leadership. Um, I love being honest. I, I, you know, things like this. I had loads of values that I had very clear. I love learning, you know, which came out of my questioning everything. But then I realized, like, I've been told many, many times, like, oh, Sven, you're not really teachable. 
or you're not really loyal or right. you're not really kind of you know submitted or or um you know with with us here and i thought like i'm really i always struggled in those situations because i thought like hey, wait a minute for me these things are extremely important things of my life why are people questioning that i'm pouring my heart out and people just question that i do this fully <laughs> yep. so what happened so anyway in, in her book is this place where she says like okay we can't live into values that we don't name or can't name and um and the next page so she talks about core values and i realized like i know a lot of my values but i can't pin them down to two right okay to two core values i don't know i literally just don't know and so the next page she has a list of 100 values um and the exercise she just says just, just, just mark all the values. You probably end up with 10 to 15. And then um, you have to sit over them until you identify the very two that are the most foundational values to your life. And I did that with that question. So which of all the values would I sacrifice under pressure? Right. Now, I remembered all those stories. With asking that question, I remembered all those stories. You're not really loyal. You're not really teachable. You're not really, you know, this. And I was like, hmm, it's very interesting. So what was similar in all those stories that people had the feeling that I am giving up my values? So what is the thing that kept them all together? And then I realized what it was is that people... Every time that happened, people told me, like, Sven, stop asking questions. This is how we do it here, right? Like, you know, trying to put you in a box. This is how we do it here. And um, just, we just wanted you to get along with this and, you know, don't question it all. Mm. And for, for me, often questioning was also to just learn to understand. I wanted to know the whys behind it and, and, the really deep understanding what is behind that. So for me, I'm, I'm motivated by understanding things. And um, anyway, on her list, I looked through and I had seen curiosity as one of the values. Okay. And I suddenly like, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> okay. And it's like, this is, I, I never considered curiosity as a value. It just right. was who I was. Okay. It was yeah. never part of something that I could proactively name and say like, Hey, questioning is who I am. Yeah. Okay. And I suddenly like, yes. And then I look back into my life and everything made sense. I, everything like, wow. <laughs> and immediately reconciliation happened with the pain, with the frustrations, with, you know, my story, I suddenly just stood there like, wow, my life makes sense. Everything I've gone through until now, you know, is so important and it just brings it to this point in my life. And it's such an important thing to have gone through. So and that's kind of, you know, I found myself uh, the year later or a few months later, I kept telling people, I said like, I feel more at home in myself now than I ever did. 